Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. As always, I'm thankful once again for this privilege and this opportunity to be able to stand before you this morning and proclaim God's holy word to you. I'm going to start off this morning by quoting a verse that should be very familiar to most of us, especially to those of you sitting right up here in the front, and that's John 14, 6, where it says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And sometimes on Friday nights in our meetings, I like to kind of reword that a little bit and say, he is the way because he is the truth because he is the life. Amen? And as Alan told us just a few weeks ago, he's the only way to true freedom. And when he sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And as we say here in our church many times, this freedom that we have is a freedom from sin and not a freedom to sin. Our text this morning is going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, where Paul comes to the close of his letter to the Ephesians, and he describes for us some things that we can use to defeat the enemy, as we know as Christians as the full armor of God. Am I echoing a little bit? And the metaphor he uses here, that's a little better, thank you, is that of a fully armed and well-trained soldier. And some say that when Paul wrote this, that he was actually chained to a Roman soldier because he describes every piece of this armor in detail. And in verses 14 through 17, there's six pieces of this armor, and God, God's word tells us to put on the full armor, which means that every piece of this armor must be in place in order for it to be effective. And to do that means that we believe that all that Jesus has done and to live that out in our daily lives. It's living in the power of everything that God has done in every area of our life, even when there's challenges. But to fully understand the armor of God in Ephesians 6 correctly, we have to look at what chapters 1 through 5 says to understand it in its right context. Putting on the full armor of God is not mainly about a certain technique or paying attention to darkness and evil. It's not a special prayer or some kind of special spiritual experience, but to put on the full armor of God is to apply all of the gospel to all of our lives. And Paul starts off in chapter 6 with the word finally because this is his last point in his letter that he builds, and he builds on what he's been talking about in the, in the previous five chapters. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he tells us of our position in Christ, and he describes to us how we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapters four through five describes that we're to walk or to live as followers of Jesus. To put on the full armor of God is first to understand all the spiritual blessings that God has already blessed us with. In verses 3 of chapter 1, it tells us that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, we're chosen to be holy and blameless without, and, and without blame. In verse 5, we're predestined and adopted as sons. Verses 6 and 7, we're accepted in the beloved and redeemed through his blood. According to the riches of his grace, and we're forgiven for our sins. In verses 8 and 9 says... 
we're given wisdom and understanding of his will. In verses 11 and 12, we're given an inheritance and bring praise and glory to God. In verses 13 and 14, tell us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and guaranteed an inheritance until our redemption is fulfilled. Ephesians 6 is the conclusion that describes how we're to stand firm even in the face of opposition. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the gospel, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with the boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Soon after conversion, every child of God learns that there's a spiritual war, warfare going on and a battle to be fought. And as believers, the more effective that we are for Christ, the more attacks we're going to receive from the enemy. Now right from the start here in verse 1, Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord. And the word translated strong actually means to be strengthened. So a different way to word this would be finally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. So what he's saying here is that in our own strength, we're no match for the devil, right? So he gives us a list of commands on how we can stand firm in this battle. And the first one is to be continually strengthened in the Lord because the best warrior for God is the one that knows his own weakness and totally relies on God's strength alone. When Paul tells us to be strengthened, to, to be strengthened in God's might, he calls, he's calling us to let God use his mighty power to empower us to do what he's called us to do. His next command is the believer's need for divine armor. And not only do we need this armor, but we're commanded to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the stratagems of the devil. So it's necessary to, to be completely armed because every piece of the armor is very important for us to be able to stand firm in this battle. And this is what we'll be talking about, how we as believers stand firm in this warfare. The word stand or stand firm is the idea of a well-trained soldier holding his position while under attack. And he mentions our need to stand four times. So basically what he's saying is that a wobbly Christian one that's not serious about God and trapped in sin can't stand in this war and he'll be destroyed. 
So how do we as Christians stand firm in this spiritual warfare? First of all, we stand firm by being prepared, right? And this is where being strong in the Lord comes in. Paul talks about God's power all throughout Ephesians. In chapter 1 and verse, verses 18 through 21, he prays for the believers to know this power where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This power that raised Christ from the dead and put Satan and his demons under his feet and under our feet, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, as Christians, we must know and realize that we're indwelt with this same power. The same power that rose Christ from the dead will rise us from the dead. Amen? In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays for the believers to be strengthened by it, where he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Folks, in order for us to be prepared for this battle, we must be strong in the Lord, and we must realize our weakness, and that in our own power, we're helpless without the power of God on our lives. And at times, for us to realize this weakness, God allows us to go through trials and suffering to prepare us for this lifetime of battle. And if you'll remember through Paul's weakness, he was given a thorn in the flesh by a messenger of Satan, and he asked the Lord not once. But he asked him three times to remove it. And the answer to this question is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, where it says, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of God may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, well, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. At times, some of these trials that we go through today are meant to reveal our weakness so that we may know that the power of God, it's the power of God that pulls us through. And we've had a lot of folks here in our church family here recently go through and some that are going through tough times right now and as believers we know that without a doubt that it's the power of God and prayer that's pulling them through it and we must constantly pray to know that this power is in us to be strengthened by it and to be continually filled with it so to stand firm we must be prepared and to be prepared we must know our weakness and knowing our weakness means that we're totally dependent on Christ and know that all of our strength comes from him and through him only. I can do all things through Christ. It strengthens me. Amen. As believers, we stand firm by knowing the enemy. The first rule of any battle is to know the enemy. Folks, if we don't know the enemy, how are we going to fight them? And I said them because it's more than one. There could be legions of them. Amen. 
The Bible says that there's legions of them. How can we stand and have victory over an enemy that we can't or haven't even identified? So we must know our enemy, know the nature of our enemy, and understand who he is and how he works. First of all, Scripture tells us that the evil one has many names, the most common being the devil and Satan. As the devil, he's the accuser, the one who constantly assaults us before God. As Satan, he's the adversary, the one who opposes God and constantly seeks to prevent us from having a life that glorifies God. And he's here to steal, kill, and destroy, and he roams around like a roaring lion, always looking for someone to devour. Make note of how Paul describes who we're up against here, where he says, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our enemies are not people. Sometimes even though we may think this war and this battle is against people, it's not. John Phillips says, he put it, he put it this way, he said, we must see beyond people. Satan may use people to per persecute us, to lie to us, to cheat us, to hurt us, or even kill us. But our enemy, real enemy, lurks in the shadows of the unseen world, moving people as pawns on the chessboard of time. As long as we see people as enemies and wrestle against them, we'll spend our strength in vain. For Satan is the great destroyer. He wants to destroy your life through adversity by blocking the work God wants to see manifested in your life. Satan does this by discouraging you, by dissipating your time and energy, and by making frontal assault, a frontal assault on your weak areas that lead you to sin. Satan wants to disrupt your walk with God, ruin your testimony, and destroy your life. Folks, I honestly believe that there's way too many Christians today that are not <coughs> taking spiritual warfare seriously or even believe that there's, just, there's such a war going on. And they've already begun to lose the battle before the war even begins. And there's two wrong views of this battle. The first one is that some see Satan as his and his demons as every little problem around every corner, such as my car won't start. I can't even afford to pay the, the note on it this month. My boss and my coworkers are the most ungodly people on the planet. We've heard Pastor Kevin say here just recently, Satan gets way too much credit today, doesn't he? The second wrong view is that in many Christian circles, folks ask activists, Satan doesn't even exist, so they're totally unaware of his activity in their lives. Folks, we must recognize that Satan's real. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of the church. But the real, real question is not whether the devil exists or whether we're engaged in spiritual warfare, or whether we're tempted. Those answers should be clear to us, right? The devil does exist. We are engaged in spiritual warfare, and we are tempted. But the question is this. How can we survive these attacks from the devil, such as the attacks of Adam and Eve in the garden? He wants people to doubt God and turn away from following him. There's no greater joy for the enemy than when a believer is angry at God or cussing God. That was Job's objective when he was, a, that was his objective when he was attacking Job. He, he wanted Job to curse God. And listen, he wants you and I to do the same thing today. If we're in a war, that must be, that mean there's going to be some fighting going on, right? 
So another way we as believers stand firm is by fighting. Well, you might say, well, I've never been too much of a fighter. Well, you better learn how to start being one because every born-again believer has been enlisted as a good soldier into battle by the Lord Jesus Christ to fight in this spiritual war. J.C. Ryle says this about it. He says, the true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He's not meant to live a life of religious ease, indolence, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven. In verse 13 of our text, Paul tells us to take up the full armor of God so that we'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand, stand firm. Most of us probably heard the old saying, the best defense is a great offense, right? Well, this standing that Paul mentions here is not a passive defensive stance, but it's more an active and offensive stance. In verse 17 through 19, he explains this by telling us to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he tells us to pray on his behalf that utterance may be given to him in the opening of his mouth to make known the boldness, the the mystery of the gospel. The sword was a defensive weapon, but it was also an offensive weapon. In this verse, Paul prays for grace and sharing the gospel, and this is what we should do as well, right? We should always be praying for an opportunity to share the gospel. In the same way that a soldier fights in a war to protect his home, his family, his country, and his freedom, as believers, we fight for the souls of the lost and pray that they'll be brought to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we should also know and understand that we're not fighting to win because Christ has already won the battle on the cross. So we're not fighting to win, but we're fighting because the war has already been won. Amen? Paul told us to be girded about with truth. So as believers, we stand firm by putting on the belt of truth. And this belt that he's referring to was like a large leather belt that held the Roman soldier's garments together as well as his sword. For the Christian, this combat harness is truth. And Paul says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. And this particular combat harness is important because of our, the nature of our enemy. Since Satan's here to steal, kill, and destroy, he's completely determined to hinder God's work in our lives. He was a liar from the beginning, a deceiver, and a serpent, and he's the exact same opposite of truth. John 8 says that Satan's a liar and there's no truth in him. And so this is how he tries to entangle us, by coming at us with lies and deception, trickery. He blurs the values of right and wrong in our society by giving us things like entertainment with the internet, Social media that glorifies immorality, blinds folks from the truth. And this is why it's so important for us folks as Christians today to implement truth in our lives, in our children's lives, in our grandchildren's lives. Get them off their mobile devices, get them off their phone, get them off their tablet and get them into the word of truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth in John 14, 6. In John 1, 14, he says, that he is full of grace and truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus says that God's word is truth. In John 8, 31, 32, he told his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are my, my disciples indeed, 
And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So in saying that, in order for us to be armed with the truth, we must know the truth. And he's put everything we need to know in his word about himself, about his son, about eternity, and about life. And when we read his word, not only read his word, when we study it, when we meditate on it and apply it to our lives, this is how we end up having this power in our lives that we've been talking about. And the more truth that we know, the more equipped we are for the battle. As believers, we stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. The soldier's breastplate was worn to protect his vital organs, his heart, his lungs, his intestines. It was a sleeveless piece of armor. It was made of leather and metal that, that covered his whole torso, front to back, all the way from the neck down to the waist. When Paul says the Christian soldier must wear the breastplate of righteousness, he means the righteousness of Christ should be like a barrier that protects us from spiritual assaults by the enemy. As Christians, we're already equipped with the righteousness of Christ. We call this positional righteousness. According to 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became our righteousness, and when we trusted him as Savior, we're clothed in him. Then when God looks at us, he doesn't see, us, see our sins. He's just, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this is our position before God. At the moment of salvation, his righteousness is imputed to us. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. Amen. We must live out this practical, practical righteousness by committing ourselves to a life that's honest, one that's upright, and one that's full of integrity. Folks, it's when we think we have so many gray areas that we try to find little ways of lying, cheating, or shading the truth. And this is when Satan gets a foothold in our hearts. So you see, the devil knows our every weakness and these little so-called little sins that we can seem to tolerate will eventually plow right through the weak spot in our armor because he knows where every one of them are. In our RU program, we call this small compromises that lead to great disasters or small sins that lead to big sins. So we can't afford to drop our guard. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we have no defense against Satan and his attacks. Every time we go to battle with the enemy, he's going to go right for our weakness and bring to mind the sin in our lives, our past failures, or even make us doubt our salvation. And then when this happens, we won't be a, an effective witness because we'll think, how can I tell them about Christ? What, in, what he's done for me when my life isn't no different than theirs. Folks, if we fill our minds with, the truth, with truth and righteousness, the devil will have a lot less opportunity to tempt us. So we must saturate our minds with Scripture, guarding our hearts and our emotions, and trust me when I say right now that I'm preaching to myself up here, maybe even more so. Verse 15 of our text talks about fitting our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we stand firm by putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace. In battle, the Roman soldier wore special thick-sewed shoes, hobnailed sandals that were wide leather straps on them with spikes protruding through the soles. And this gave them better traction and a foundation that would protect their feet from injury from the traps that the enemy would set. 
as soldiers of Christ, we too must have solid footing for footwear. The preparation of the gospel of peace. The word preparation comes from the Greek word that means readiness or firmness. As believers, we must stand firm and trust that the one who's called us into battle will always be working for our good. If we spend our time worrying or questioning God's care and concern for us, we'll be unproductive on the battlefield. Remember, we're not in a battle against other people, so it's important for us to be equipped with the inner peace produced by the gospel of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ is our peace. The Bible constantly tells us not to worry, not to fear, not to let our hearts be troubled. One of the worst things that we can do is go into battle against the devil with fear in our hearts. How can we minister to others in a dark and dying world if our hearts are so upset that we seem no different than anyone else? That would be kind of like going into battle barefoot, wouldn't it? So as believers, we must go into our daily warfare with a peace that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace is our protection that reminds us that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that souls are saved. Verse 16 of our text says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. As believers, we stand firm by putting on the shield of faith. The Roman shield was made of wood covered with leather and sometimes with metal. There was two types of shield in that day in battle. One was small and round that a soldier would wear on his arm for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And this other shield was described in our text is, a, is the door-type shield. And this, this shield, this is the one that Paul was describing in our text, the large shield that covered most of the soldier's body. And these shields were designed to be soaked down with water so they could withstand the fiery arrows of the enemy. In battle under heavy attack with these large shield, shields, a soldier could drop to one knee, throw this, this shield over him, and it would protect his whole body. That's the way our faith operates, right? When the enemy, enemy fires thoughts into our mind, our face, faith quenches those thoughts. Our faith is the most powerful weapon against the devil, and it's, it's, just, it's our first line of defense. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Make note of what he said here he, about his faith. He didn't say that he lived his, his life in the flesh by his faith in the Son of God because he knew that it wasn't his faith. But it was the faith that God given to him. Folks, even our faith is a gift from God, and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is our shield. Faith's not about what we can do for God, but it's about what God desires to do for us. And through us, it's trusting God for what he's done and for what he will do. And we trust in God by knowing his character. And the only way that we can know his character is by knowing his word. 
Proverbs 18.10 says, the, the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. In the ancient world, a person's name wasn't just what they were called because their name actually referred to their character. The writer of Proverbs says that knowing God's character is a great protection for us. The more we know God and who he is, the stronger we can stand in this spiritual warfare. Faith is an action word, and the only way that we can put our faith into action is by arming ourselves with the truth about God and who he is. So we're ready for every fiery dart that Satan sends our way, which means coming against them in our mind with what God's told us that's true in the gospel. The truth in his word, a solid answer from scripture. So when Satan tries to get into our mind and throw things at us like, you're no good, you're nothing, you're pathetic. After what you did, you think God still loves you? You can never make a difference. He'll never use you. Your marriage will always be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll never get out of debt. You'll never get off the drugs and the alcohol. And this is when we throw up our shield and say, Surely, goodness and mercy, greater is he that is within me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God is working all things out together for the good. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Folks, this is how we fight the devil with God's word. James chapter 7 and verse 4, he tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. These shields were also made in a way they could be linked together. Under a heavy rain of arrows, they had locked these shields together, hunkered down behind the enemy, and as they moved forward, they were used as a defense wall, defensive wall. As Christians, we're not in this battle alone, are we? This is a picture of God's people coming together in the church. The enemy attacks from every direction, so we come together as one body of believers fighting this war side by side. As believers, we stand firm by putting on the helmet of salvation. This, this repeats in a new way some of what's already been said. As with the shield, these helmets were usually made of leather and sometimes with metal plates at the templates and at the forehead. No Roman soldier would go into battle without his helmet because he'd be foolish if he did. That's true today as well. No soldier goes into battle without protection for his head. When a soldier hears the call battle stations, the first thing he grabs is his helmet. When a foot soldier hears the call heads up, there's income, and the first thought on his mind that is his helmet. If you want to survive any battle, you'll soon realize the importance of protecting your head. Now, when Paul talks about taking up the helmet of salvation, there's some who will take the position that it's referring to salvation, meaning to get saved, to get born again. And there's some that says it's the act of committing our lives to Jesus. But there's a couple of problems with that view because he's not saying, now that you're in the army of the Lord, put on the helmet of salvation. You get in the army by getting saved first. That's already happened. I mean, you're not even in the army unless you're a believer, right? If you're taking a stand against the enemy, you've already, you already have to be on God's side. 
If you're not a believer, Satan don't need to attack you because he's already captured you. So salvation in itself can't be the fifth thing you do to protect yourself from the attacks of the enemy. It has to be the first thing that you do. If you weren't saved, you'd still be fighting against God, not Satan. So he's not giving instruction to unbelievers here. He's talking to believers. So getting saved is not the issue. The helmet of salvation represents the assurance of our salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, when Paul talks to the Thessalonians about the helmet of salvation, he calls it a helmet of hope. Where it says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In this verse, Paul, he clearly points out that hope is our helmet. And he's saying that there will be a day in the future where we'll not suffer the wrath of God, but instead we'll receive the reward of our salvation. To take up the helmet of salvation means... To remind ourselves that Jesus is our Savior and what he's done for us, he wants to do for others. And to remind, it reminds us that we were once sinners, but we're now saved by grace and no longer in bondage to sin. It's to remind us that the Holy Spirit is always with us to protect us from the enemy. Every born-again believer at the very moment they're saved or sealed by the Holy Spirit. And what's been done can't be undone. Amen. So I really think that Paul's telling us here that one of the most important thoughts to keep at the forefront of our minds is the fact that Jesus is our Savior. And he wants to deliver us from all the doubt, all the lies that come our way. And that we as Christians should be confident and assured of this. We as believers stand firm by taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So far, each piece of this armor that's been mentioned has been for defense and not offense. In our text, Paul uses the Greek word makara for sword. He wasn't talking about what we would maybe think of as a sword today, but he was talking about a dagger, which was about 18 inches long. And this was used for close-up close hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. It was a double-edged sword, which means that it could be sharpened on both sides, giving it cutting power both ways. And the metaphor that he uses here is that it was truly two-sided, meaning that it was used for both offense and defense, defending us against the devil, and not only that, but actively forcing the devil to flee from us. Paul clearly stated here that the sword is the sword of the Spirit and that it's the Word of God. The Greek word for the Word of God in this passage is Rema. So the word that God's referring to here wouldn't be the whole Bible, the Logos, but particular parts of the word to be applied in particular situations by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's word is our arsenal that we keep stored up in our minds as individual swords of the Spirit that are kept within until we need them for up-close combat with the enemy. The actual sword of the soldier in combat pierces the body, but the, spirit, the spiritual sword pierces the heart. You know, the more we use a physical knife or a sword, the more dull that it can tend to get, right? But the more that we use our spiritual sword, the sharper it gets. 
When Jesus was attacked by Satan, the first three words that he confronted him with was, it is written. And folks, our spiritual sword is the God-breathed, written word of God. Amen? Most of us guys here this morning have probably carried a pocket knife on us before, right? And when you carry a knife, you want it to be sharp. Well, Jim Clark back there, me and him used to hunt together, and we used to work on the deer lease a lot. And when one of us would need a knife, you probably don't even realize this, but I'd always want to be the first one to grab in my pocket and get my knife. And the reason for that was I wanted to show Jim that my knife was sharper than his. But guess what? That never was the case. His knife was always sharper than mine. So if you want a sharp knife or a sharp machete, just give it back there to Jim Clark, but you might want to be careful with it when you get it back because it'll probably be sharp enough to cut your finger off. Folks, we should always want to keep our swords sharp and be ready and eager to use it. In season and out of season, Paul tells, us, tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The word translated ready comes from the Greek word for stand, and the idea here is to always be standing by, always on duty, ready to go. Folks, if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God and always be ready with an answer, we're going to need to store up God's word in our minds so it can be ready for playback in a moment's notice to fight the temptations of the evil one. In other words, as believers, we need to memorize the word of God because most of the time when, temp when we face temptation, when that temptation comes our way, it's not going to happen when we have a Bible in our hands. And like a soldier's sword, the Word of God is active only when it's taken up and used. All the spiritual armor that we spoke of in verses 14 through 17, we should have realized by now that it's putting on, that this armor is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in regard to its lust. So this armor is our identity in Christ. It's who we are in him. And these are not signs of our spiritual power or authority, but they're an acknowledgement of his power and his authority. So when we put on the full armor of God, we're saying to the devil, you're going to have to go through Jesus to get to me. Verse 18 of our text says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So what do we do as we stand fully clothed with the identity of Christ? As we stand fully dressed for battle, we pray. So we as believers stand firm by praying in the Spirit. And prayer is not mentioned in our text as part of the armor, but I believe it to be one of the main parts of our armor as Christians. And it's not just a piece of spiritual armor against the devil, but it's what we do once we're clothed in the armor. It's through prayer that we develop a close, intimate, one-on-one -on -one relationship 
with God. It's a two-way communication. Ground soldiers on the battlefield have these satellite radios. It's kind of like some of us will remember this, kind of like the bag phones we used to have before cell phones come about. They were used so they could continually communicate with one another and relay their location back and forth so they wouldn't drift too far apart. And not only that, but the company up ahead would warn the ones behind that the enemy was near. So every good soldier needs a good communication device, right? Praying always with all prayer and perseverance for all the saints, which means that our two-way radio should always be turned on so what I really think he's telling us here is that our prayer life as Christians should be strong, consistent, and sincere. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So as believers, how's our communication devices and how do we have an effective prayer life? Well, first of all, we know that we can't engage in spiritual warfare without spiritual weapons, right? We can't be strong in ourselves. We have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we must be dressed for battle. And it's our prayer life that enables us to apply the sword effectively. And listen, it's not a matter of how much knowledge we may think we have, or how talented we may think we are. If we try to fight our spiritual battles in the enemy, enemy energy of the flesh, we'll fail every time. And Paul doesn't just call us to any type of prayer in verse 18, but he specifically calls us to prayer in the Spirit, which means to pray under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this doesn't mean that we have some kind of charismatic experience when we start mumbling or uttering some kind of jibber-jabber that no one can understand, he says that we're to pray at all times, which means praying always or to pray without ceasing. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we mutter prayers all day long, but it means that we keep our two-way communication line open all day long. Just as a good soldier keeps in continual communication with the commander-in-chief, we stay in continual communication with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Which means don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Thanking him for everything and bringing our specific request unto him. This is one of John MacArthur's comments on prayer without ceasing. He says, to pray at all times is to live in a continual God consciousness where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer, lived in deep awareness of and surrender to our Heavenly Father. To obey this exhortation means that when we're tempted, we hold the temptation before God and ask for his help. When we experience something good and beautiful, we immediately thank the Lord for it. When we see evil all around us, we pray that God will make it right and be willing to be used of him to that end. When we meet someone who does not know Christ, we pray for God to draw that person to himself and to, to be used 
as a faithful witness. When we encounter trouble, we turn to God as our deliverer. In other words, our life becomes a continual ascending prayer, a perpetual communion with our Heavenly Father. Folks, I really don't think it could be put more clearer than that. Right? Our prayer life isn't just something we do for a few minutes after we wake up in the morning or before we go to bed or night or, or what we do before we partake of a meal. It's not so much we do, but again, it's who we are in Christ. We're to pray with all petition. Sometimes it's easy getting caught up bringing God our list, uh, grocery list of wants, isn't it? And asking for this and for that, but what petitioning God means in this verse is praying about specific needs or praying and asking God to intervene in a particular life situation or a circumstance. Jesus said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, some folks want to use this verse where it says, that will I do, meaning that if you believe if you have the faith that it'll come to be that God will grant your request like he's some kind of genie in a bottle, right? That we make wishes to. Well, you might say, well, that kind of sounds like Kevin. Well, I learned a lot from Kevin. <laughs> but that's the grocery list of wants, isn't it? We, we know that's not the way prayer works, right? But what does it mean? It means that anything we ask in the Father's name that would bring him glory, that will I do. Amen? And Paul also tells us to this end that we're to be on alert with all perseverance for all the saints. And this word alert here literally means sleepless or not drowsy. Have any of you ever fell asleep while you're praying? Yeah, that's not a trick question. <laughs> I, I do it a lot. If, if you say you haven't, then you've never prayed when you lay down in a bed, <laughs> most likely. Uh, I've done it before. Some, some of you may even accidentally dozed off a time or two while I've been standing up here. But you, but you know, that's normal. We're human. We get tired. We get sleepy, right? But what Paul's telling us here is that there's a war going on. We have a responsibility. We're on guard duty. He's saying... While we're on duty, we can't afford to stay awake for 20 minutes of our watch and then get, start getting drowsy and allow our heads to droop. So he's saying, don't sleep or allow yourself to doze. Keep your eyes open and be aware of what's going on around you because you don't know when or where the enemy's going to attack. <coughs> and make note here that he says for all the saints, so we're watching and looking out for others. We're in this together. We didn't join the army to fight this battle alone. Amen? And now finally, at the close of his letter, he makes a request. And his request is that, you know, not that he be set free or... Hmm. I, can, I can just imagine, I can just picture what he's going through. Not that he'd be set free or made more comfortable in his stay in prison. But his request was, excuse me, that the Ephesian believers 
would pray that he'd be able to spread the gospel with boldness and courage to preach fearlessly. And folks, the reason he was praying for boldness to do this because he was being attacked by the enemy while he was writing this. And listen, shouldn't this be our prayer as well? That God would give us the boldness to proclaim his word, the courage to preach and to teach his word? Shouldn't it be our prayer that other believers would properly interpret and understand God's word and for them to be filled with spiritual discernment and to share that with others out in the world and to pray that the gospel would be received and that folks would come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that note, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity you allowed me to stand before my church, Lord, and preach your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, for heroes of the faith like Paul, Lord, that while he was under attack from the enemy, Lord, that he, he had the boldness and the courage to write, Lord, and tell us, Lord, and warn us of things and tell us how to live and how to be strong as Christians, Lord. Help us to put on the full armor of God, Lord, so that we can resist in the evil day. Lord, and I thank you for our church and this church family, Lord. Uh, I pray and thank you, Father, for salvation, Lord, and your ultimate sacrifice on Calvary, Lord, so that we could be free. And Father Jesus, I thank you so much for our pastor, Kevin, and, and his family, Becky. And I pray that you'd be with them, Lord, as they're away and they're traveling. I pray you watch over and protect them and guide them. I pray for guidance for our whole church. I pray for our our leaders, our teachers, our praise team, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us and help us, Lord, to straight, stay true to your word and stay in your word continually as, we, as we've been speaking of. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen.